Alright, will the Lord be with you? Alright, good morning. Let's, uh, once again, let's uh, start by taking our outlines and uh, looking at the Creed, and let's go ahead and recite it together like we did last week. Starting with the Apostles' Creed, which is in bold. I believe. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. You guys are way ahead of me. <laughs> all right. Now let's do the composite expansion. I believe in one unoriginate God, the Father Almighty, King of the ages, Invisible and impassable, uncreated, immortal, uncontainable, uncircumscribed, without beginning, incomprehensible, indescribable, unsearchable, without variation or change. Creator and framer of all things, of heaven and earth, and the seas and all that are in them, of all things visible and invisible, who has his being from himself, and from whom are all things, and who contains all things. And we say this to the glory of God the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, well, last week we uh, were, again, is anyone, everyone's here is uh, old-timers, right? Nobody do? All right. Old-timers. Old-timers, all right. So, we talked about the word creator last week. Focused on that one word. Um, we thought about the difference between created nature and uncreated nature. Remember that? Um, and then we, we, we said, we affirmed the Christian belief that out of nothing, the Father uh, purposefully and intentionally brought into being everything that is and exactly how he wanted it to be. Okay? So that was last week. Now this week we're going to actually zoom in on what he made. So in the creed we say that he's the creator of the heavens and the earth, of all things visible and invisible. So that's what our focus is this morning. And this is going to wrap up Article 1. We're going to finish the the article on the Father this morning. All right, let's start then with the phrase heaven and earth. Now this is a literary device where you take two terms that compass both ends of a spectrum. It basically means everything. Heaven, earth, the things under the earth, and everything in between, everything imaginable. Um, some ancient creeds add and the sea. Uh, others add and everything in them, or all things in them. There's a Coptic uh, Eucharistic prayer uh, that I think is still in use today from the 4th century that's used in Egypt. And it says that God is the maker of heavens and the things in the heavens. The earth and the things in the earth, the seas, the fountains, the rivers, the lakes, and all that are in them. In case you didn't get the point, right? Now, this is an expansion of a, of a, of a phrase, a sentence that actually is biblical. It originates in the Ten Commandments. Okay? In, the, in the description of the Sabbath commandment, the Fourth Commandment, God himself, with his own voice describes himself as the one who made heavens and earth and the sea and all that are in them. And that self-description of God then gets taken up in one of the Psalms 
as an expression of praise to God by the creature. And there from its home in the Psalms, the Psalms are always uh, used, have, have significant volume in the minds of uh, Jews of later period and early Christians. And so we see in the New Testament this language from the Ten Commandments and later the Psalms becoming a kind of creedal fragment in addressing the Father. It comes a kind of a, a beginning of a creed. So in the book of Acts, you see the first Christians addressing God the Father in prayer as the God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all who are in them. And you see it again later on in the book of Acts in a sermon addressed to pagans. This is what they need to know. This is the beginning of the gospel. It is that God is the creator of heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are in them. So from the church's birth, literally from its birth, from its, from its first weeks, it's a brand new infant. Christians are addressing the Father as the God who made heavens and earth and the sea and all things in them. Now, like most Eastern creeds, um, the Nicene Creed adds an additional phrase. In fact, it actually the original Nicene Creed just had this additional phrase. The later Constantinopolitan Creed, which is what we have to say, combined the two, so we have both. And that is the phrase, all things visible and invisible. And I find this a little more interesting than heavens and earth. So that's actually going to frame our um, outline today. Um, now this phrase, visible, all things visible and invisible, actually comes from a hymn to Christ that you can find in the book of Colossians. Apparently the earliest Christians were already singing this, uh, or saying it, um, as part of their regular worship. So this would be something they would be saying on a regular basis, which is probably how it made it into the creed. Um, once again, the phrase, all things visible and invisible, simply mean everything. There's nothing that's not either visible or invisible, so that's everything you can imagine. Now, there is what this tells us is that there are things that we can see, we know that, but there are also things we cannot see. Did you know that there are two worlds? Now, not just mean planet, right, the planet Earth, there's lots of planets. I mean the whole cosmos. I mean the entire universe. There's two of them. Not in different places, but overlapping. One superimposed upon the other. They're very close to one another. Only a thin veil separates the two. The first world that God created is the unseen or invisible world. The fathers called this the intellectual or intelligible world. And by that, they meant that it cannot be grasped by the five senses. Okay? It's, non, it's not sensible. It can, however, be grasped by mind, by the intellect, by the spirit. This is the world that is not made up of atoms. It's not composed of matter, which means it's beyond the realm of science to investigate, explore, prove, or disprove. Just incapable of saying anything about this world. This is a world which is basically composed, again, I'm giving you the Father's view on this, of a kind of spiritual light. This is the imagery they most often use. A kind of spiritual light emanating from God. And in this world, there is countless numbers of beings. Beings that are intellectual in nature, but not physical. This, of course, is the world of angels. 
I want us to be very clear on this because we live in a day and age in which angels and demons are, you know, kind of laughed at, right? The church, following most strands of Judaism before us, most definitely, positively believes in the existence of angels. There are beings who are intellectual, who are intelligent, but are not human. Now this is deeply ingrained upon our faith because it informs our very worship. In fact, the liturgies, the historic liturgies of the church are imbued with this concept of the angelic. You know why we sing the Sanctus every, every Sunday? You know, the Holy, Holy, Holy? That's because that is what is being sung at this very moment in the unseen world. That's the worship of the angelic host that they offer to the one who created them. And when we gather together for worship, especially as we approach the heart of our worship, which is the Holy Eucharist, we are entering a worship service that's already going on. We are joining the angels, our fellow creatures, adding our voices to theirs. We're being drawn up into the heavenlies, admitted to the very thresholds of the invisible, unseen world, and we, with them, become one congregation. So you can't get rid of a belief in angels. You can't extract that and say, I want to be a Christian and believe what Christians believe, that I don't go for the angel thing. You can't do that. It's, it's, it's part of the very fabric of Christian historic Christian worship. Now, what do we know about the angels? Not much. <laughs> Not much. But we do know a few things, or at least we have a pretty good idea about a few things. First of all, there's not only one kind of angel. Certainly not, you know, the, the, the beautiful woman with blonde hair and fluffy white wings and a halo, and certainly not the fat, chubby little baby, right? Banish those ideas from your mind, okay? Just, that, that's, <laughs> those are the world's ideas, or rather the world's mockery. No, there are many kinds of, actually many, there are numerous kinds of angels. The Bible tells us that there are various orders or ranks. We traditionally think of the, maybe the top rank as being composed of orders like the cherubim and the seraphim. Um, there's thought to be intermediate ranks with names like thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. And then there's archangels and regular angels that are thought to be at the bottom. This, these levels of orders or ranks compose what we call the heavenly host. Host, by the way, means army. So we're thinking about a vast chorus, the guardians, the army of the heavenly realms. The church fathers called these angelic beings secondary lights or secondary splendors. And the idea was that each rank is illuminated with that spiritual light that comes from the rank above them in descending degrees, all the way till the top rank, which is in turn illuminated by God himself, the primary light, or primary splendor. The second thing that our fathers uh, would say is that the nature of angels, first of all, we don't know what that is. It's spiritual, but there's something, it's created too. It's a creature, and so there's something that's, that they would almost think of it as having a body, but a, but a spiritual body, not a material body. And the best way they could describe it is that angels are composed of a kind of immaterial fire. 
Now, they're just using biblical imagery here because the Bible says that the Lord makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire, which is, of course, a metaphor. But in, the, in, the, in spiritual things, a lot of times metaphors as close as we can get. And so that's what we use. Now, they don't think of this as real fire, like we think of, material fire. That's material. But it is like fire. The angels are something which is bright, burning, fierce, awesome, quick, powerful. Thirdly, angels are thought to be always in motion, as to be very agile, able to traverse all of space in a very short time. They are limited, they're creatures, which means they cannot be in more than one place at a time. But they can move very fast at the speed of thought. And they are not limited or restricted by anything material. No barriers, no boundaries, no limits. Slow them down. Lastly, it is often thought that the lowest rank of angels, maybe higher, some higher ranks as well, are stationed, appointed here on earth and distributed amongst the nations, amongst the regions of this world, as God's ministers to watch over mankind, from whence they get the name in very primitive times, in fact, predating Christianity, they're called the Watchers for that very reason. Also very ancient in the church is the idea that there are individual angels that are assigned to individual people. Once again, this is a very ancient idea, the idea of the guardian angel. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us much more than that. And even those things, it, it really only hints at. Okay? We're drawing a lot of conclusions about a lot of fragmentary data in the Bible. And I think the reason why the Bible doesn't give us a lot, we'd, we'd love to know more, right? I don't think God wants us preoccupied with the angels. He doesn't want us to be always thinking about them all the time. And we are absolutely forbidden to worship them. Now, we might say, well, I wouldn't do that. Well, I don't know. If you saw one who, un, who was not masked as you know, a human or something, if he was glorified, in the fear and awe that that inspired in you, you probably would be very tempted to worship him. People in the Bible, when they see them, tend to fall down and start worshiping, and then the angel has to say, stop doing that, stand up. <laughs> not allowed to do that. Um, I'm just a fellow creature. All right, so those are the angels. Now, unfortunately... These are not the only beings that, make, that are part of the unseen, invisible world. The church has always had an acute awareness of evil, malevolent spirits that we generally call demons. We have particularly an awareness of the prince of demons, whom we generally call the devil. Again, this is something that the world laughs at, but is indispensable to the Christian faith. It's a very, very part, it's a very central, essential part of our liturgies. When we're baptized, what do, what do we do? We renounce, traditionally, the formula is we renounce the devil, his pomp, and his angels. That's the angels underneath him, the demons. In the early church, catechumens received prayers of exorcism, and even the oil of exorcism meant to expel any lingering demons and to prevent their return. And before that, taking the demonic threat seriously at face value and confronting it was very much a major part of Jesus' own ministry. 
and the ministry of the apostles after him. So this is not something you can extricate from the Christian religion. Now, the devil, good, this is good news, he's just a creature. Right? He's one of us. He's a creature. He is powerful, immensely so, but he's still limited. And now, the devil was also not evil from the beginning. We know this because God created nothing evil. And he's one of God's creatures too. So he cannot have been made evil from the beginning. But he obviously is evil now. How did that happen? Well, we don't have a dogmatic answer for that. This has never been settled with any kind of dogma. But the church has generally, without much disagreement, believed that the devil was at one time one of the highest of the angelic beings, perhaps one of the cherubim. And that at some point he was exalted in his pride and in his beauty. Um, some of the fathers thought as well that he may have become jealous when he saw that God created man and then bestowed so much favor upon him um, that that somehow stirred up an attitude of jealousy in him. But whatever the occasion might have been, at some point in time after he was made, this great, this mighty angel turned against his creator. And he therefore lost all this beauty and all this light and all this nearness to God that he once had. And ever since then, he has become mankind's greatest enemy. And particularly the enemy of God's people, the church. Now, demons, like angels, are believed to be distributed or assigned around the globe to various localities. You have a prince of Persia and a prince of Greece mentioned in the book of Daniel. The idea being that there's actual localities or assignments to various of these beings. And these two hosts, the angelic host and the demonic host, are in battle. They're in constant battle over the souls of men. One side is seeking to destroy them. The other side is seeking to help raise them up to God. This is the world we cannot see, but when we confess in the creed that God is the maker of all things invisible, this is what we're confessing that we believe exists all around us. It's very much a part of our reality. So that's the first world. Now the second world that God made is the one we're more familiar with. This is the visible, the material world. This is what we call the sensible world. That means you can sense it. You can touch it, feel it, smell it, taste it, hear it. And God made this one also. Now today we'd say, well, duh. But in the early church, this was more meaningful because the earliest heresy to really threaten the church was called Gnosticism. And the fundamental tenet, Gnostics had all kinds of different ideas, but the fundamental tenet that they kind of all held in common was that matter, material things, are inherently evil. Inherently. Which means that a good God could not have possibly made this physical world. It had to be made by maybe angels or you know, secondary inferior deities or something else, but not the good God. Uh, in fact, they would, some of them would go so far as to blasphemously, well, it's all, it was all blasphemy, but particularly to say that the God of the Old Testament, the God that the Jews worshipped, who you know, in Genesis 1 and 2 made the world, he was an evil God. The Demiurge, they called him, and the good God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he's against it. Now you can imagine that the early church blasted this blasphemous idea you know, vehemently, and affirmed that God is the creator of not only the good spiritual things like, like angels, 
but also of this physical, material world as well. He is the... So, God created all creatures, not just the ones we like. He even created spiders and snakes and, you know, mosquitoes. (laughs) There's nothing out there that is inherently evil that a good God could not have created. All right? There was supposedly some debate in the early church about whether Satan created flies. And I remember the end of that debate back and forth was that if he created flies, then he must have also created frogs to eat fries. And if he created things, he probably created... And it eventually ended up with the devil created everything. Right? So, which obviously is not true. So the church was vehemently opposed to this. The same God that speaks to us in the Old Testament is the Father of the Lord Jesus in the New Testament. And this one and only true God created everything. Now let's think for just a minute about this visible creation. The visible world is both breathtakingly vast and breathtakingly minute. God created galaxies and nebulae and heavenly bodies on a scale so vast our minds can can hardly comprehend them. And he also created the most wonderful, intricate machinery in the smallest living cell that far surpasses anything humans can, can duplicate on our own. And if you go to the atom and you go to the subatomic particles of the atom, and maybe there's even things smaller than that we haven't yet discovered, God created all of that as well. There is a world of minuteness that we haven't even begun to discover. We're just starting. And there's a world of vastness that we can't ever even hope to explore. We're just getting to the edges of the edge with all of our telescopes and all of our technology and all of our space exploration. This, both grand scale and minute scale, inspires us with awe. It takes our breath away. It is meant to cause us to marvel. To marvel at the wisdom and the intelligence and the power and the goodness that made this vastness and this minuteness. And we haven't even begun to see and discover everything that's out there. We're always discovering new things. Back in the book of Job... He says that these, speaking of creation, are the mere edges of his ways. And what a small whisper we hear of him. Everything we see, everything we can see with our telescopes and our microscopes, is just a small whisper of God. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? And that will always be the intended response of the creature as we gaze upon the visible world. Now, in the book of Genesis, we read that God not only created the habitations, the abodes, you know, outer space and uh, the the world, the earth with its sea and land and and sky. He also created the various creatures that inhabit these various abodes. Each species, each kind of life, each nature was created with a nature suitable to its assignment, to its place in the world, to its abode. But Genesis also tells us that God created in graduated steps. You have successive days, whether those are literal days or not, they're successive moments. So with each moment you have a creative act which causes nature to ascend in complexity and order. It starts out with the most basic nature, and that is inanimate things that take up space to have mass. The sun, the moon, the stars, um, the sky, the sea, the land the elements. 
After that, he creates, secondly, the simplest form of life, which is what the fathers would call vegetable or nutritive. So this is that life which supplies nourishment and allows growth and reproduction. And this is something that the plants have. Then he creates a higher form of life. This is something which moves and feels and senses and has appetite. It's called the sentient. That means feeling, sensing. The sentient, or you could say animal soul, or animal life. That's all the word soul really means. And this is something in common to everything that moves on the earth. And even here, you see a gradation. You see God creating the simplest form, the lower form of animals, birds and fish, first. And then later, actually on a subsequent day, creating the higher animals on land. So you can see this stepwise ascent as the creator of the world is building in stages. Higher and higher uh, forms of nature leading eventually to the crown jewel. Us. Now, let's think for a second about man. Boy, it's so quiet in here. <laughs> let's have a pop quiz. What... What world does man belong to? Is he part of the visible world or the invisible world? Yes. yes. Very good. Good Anglicans. I love it. <laughs> That's a train. All right. Now, nearly all liturgies uh, which mention God as creator, which is most of them, um, almost immediately focus in on his creation of man. Because that's really the main point. That's why he created everything, was to get to man. Now, we don't see this mentioned explicitly in the creed, but it is implied by what has already been said. Man belongs to both the invisible and the visible world. We are that creature at the intersection between the material and the immaterial, the visible and the visible creation. No other creature, this is not true of anything else. Angels have no part in the material world. They can interact with it, they can influence it, but they themselves have no part. They're not made of it. They're not from that world. Animals have no part in the spiritual world. Man and man alone is unique in that we are part of both. We are a composite in a way that no other creature is. So we speak of a lower nature in man and a higher nature. Now the lower nature is something we have in common with the animals. Okay? This is not unique. In common with the animals, we have three things that make up our lower nature. First, we have our bodies. And these, of course, take up, partake of the nature of the elements, the nature of you know, mass, things that have mass and take space. So that's the most basic part. But these bodies are then quickened, secondly, by a life which is vegetable or nutritive that we have in common with the plants. And this is whence we get nourishment and growth and reproduction. But thirdly, this nutritive life is governed by a sentient or sensing or feeling soul that would be our lower soul, if, you, if you'd like to call it that. And this is something we have in common with animals. Okay? It is correct that animals have a soul. It's just not a human soul. It's something, it's something lower. It's something which provides motion and uh, the ability to sense and appetite. Okay? Those are the things that the animal soul provides. And again, that's something we have in common with the animals. So all of this, our bodies our vegetable or nutritive life and our animal or sentient soul compose our lower nature. What the Bible collectively calls the flesh. But this is only half of us. And this is what makes man unique. 
We also have a higher nature, and this is of heavenly origin. This is what the fathers called the rational, the intellectual, or the spiritual soul. This is akin to the angels. Far inferior, to be sure, but of like kind. And this is something that we have the animals do not. Now let's think for a second, what is the human soul? What do we know about the soul? Well, the fundamental character of the human soul, according to the fathers, was that it has freedom of will, or self-mastery, or self-rule. It was actually a Greek word that you would see coming up again and again and again that is translated self-rule as the, as the principal characteristic of what the human soul is. This is the power to choose between right and wrong without our choices being predetermined by anything outside of us, like the stars, you know, the horoscope, or fate, or evil spirits, or genetics, or instinct, or nature, or our upbringing. Now, these are things that people have blamed their bad choices on, and some of them do, most of them, not all, do, in fact, influence us. But they cannot force us. They cannot forcibly move us. The rational soul, this is what makes the rational soul rational. The rational soul moves itself. It's self-moved. It is not a slave to these influences around it. If, you know, not, not the way it's made. Not originally. Animals can't do this. When animals make choices, they make choices that are fully predetermined by these various influences that are upon them, especially instinct. Okay? Our choices are not predetermined. They're influenced. Our wills can be bent, pushed, blowed upon, but they cannot be forced. There's something more we can say about the soul. It supplies us with the faculty of reason, the capacity of understanding, the knowledge of things that are not present. The animals have knowledge of things that are present, okay, but not things that are not present. Certainly not things they've never seen, but only heard about. We have the capacity for logic, the capacity for reflection, for poetry, for art, for a moral conscience, for religion, for notions and thoughts of immortality and eternity. Again, these are things that the animals don't have. But if you think about it, these things are properties that belong to divinity. They're properties of lordship. So how is it that we, mere creatures, came to have such powers? Well, it's because, the Bible says, and the church fathers would say, the higher soul, that is the human soul we've been talking about, not the lower nature, was made in the image of God. When God breathed into the nostrils of man and he became a, a living soul, he imparted something of himself. He imparted something, a, a shadow, a bare outline of his own image and likeness to us. This is what the church fathers would sometimes even call, and we're not used to this language, but would even call a kind of diluted divinity, which the rest of creation does not share. And this makes sense because we were created to rule as God rules. The image of God in us is, is, is our royalty. It's God's stamp upon us that gives us the authority and the power to rule the earth. Now, even though sin has disordered us and severely defaced and obscured and um, corrupted this image within us, it hasn't erased it. This is very important. It's not gone. The image is still there. And even in the most degraded, 
horrible of human beings, there is still traces of that likeness that remain. Sin has not utterly distinguished the spark of divinity, which is what the Orthodox like to say. We Westerners don't talk like that. The Orthodox do. They don't mind calling it the spark of divinity, which exists in all men. Horribly corrupted, horribly uh, you know, uh, difficult to see, buried under all kinds of corruption, but still there. That royal image still remains in every man and woman. So, man is therefore a compound creature who derives his origin from both the earth, our lower nature, and heaven. He is, as the church fathers would say, a blend. He is blended of every form of soul, right? The material soul, the vegetable or nutritive soul, the sentient or animal soul, and this heavenly, rational, sensible, or excuse me, intellectual soul. Which makes him, this was another favorite imagery they used, a kind of little world, a kind of miniature world in and of ourselves. You know, the, the universe is composed of the visible and the invisible, the, mater- the immortal and the mortal. Man is composed of the same. We're kind of a little world in and of ourselves. Gregory of Nazianzus says it in a beautiful way I can't improve on, so I'm going to give you a quote here. God created man, this is a great, the great, one of the greatest theologians of the 4th century, by the way. God placed man great in littleness on the earth. A new angel, a mingled worshiper, fully initiated into the visible creation, but only partially into the intellectual. King of all upon the earth, but subject to the king above. Earthly and heavenly. Temporal and yet immortal. Visible and yet intellectual. Halfway between greatness and littleness. So man is an amazing, one-of-a-kind creature. Well, the last thing that I want to say before we close is something that's very, very important to Christian faith. And that is that the whole of creation, the visible and the invisible, is good. Now, this is, again, something that is aimed against the Gnostics and later a group of heretics known as the Manichaeans who denied the goodness of creation. You had various kinds, especially in the earliest centuries, of heretics who did things like uh, they would only drink water, even in the Eucharist, because wine was evil. Or, you know, they denied uh, procreation and marriage because that was evil. No wonder they're not around today. Uh, you know, or they denied the eating of meat, or etc., etc., etc. It was a denial of the goodness of creation. The church doesn't think like that. When the church looks at the world, when all of its materiality and earthiness, it sees beauty and order and usefulness. It sees a gift from our Heavenly Father. In fact, the word cosmos, from which we get cosmology, right? It means beautiful. Arranged, fitly, adorned. God decked out the world with beauties and delights just for us. He laid before us a rich and varied banquet. Think about it. All kinds of things he made he didn't have to make for life to exist. Why did God make color? Or music? Why did he give us flowers? Or foods of every kind of taste? Why does he create so many forms of life that we'll never discover all the species? This is the palace that he's created for the king that he intended to put over it all. And the temple, by the way, which he himself will dwell in. And he made it good and beautiful. 
Or at least it was. Now, to be honest, it's mixed, right? There's still an outstanding amount of good in the world, in the physical creation. But it is also badly marred by evil. And this is the last thing I want to say, and that is that evil is not actually a part of creation. God did not make anything evil. In the beginning, everything was good. Evil is something that we creatures came up with. We invented it. We were given free will, and we used it poorly. Evil is not itself a nature, because remember, God created every nature. So the evil can't be a nature. It's not something created. It is, in fact, the loss or defacing of the goodness of creation. It's a falling away from what God made as he made it. It's not a new creation. It's the undoing of creation. It's the deconstruction, the reversal of God's creative acts. Which means, on the flip side, what is redemption? If if redemption addresses the problem of evil, and evil is deconstruction or the loss of nature, then redemption must be what? Recreation, right? Putting nature back together. Bringing our world back into the fullness of the existence that God meant for it. Redemption restores the fullness of created beauty and goodness and orderliness of both heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. So, what should be our response? Yes? I notice you say visible and invisible, not seen and unseen Uh, a lot more. Is there any preference? Well, of course, in our 79 liturgy, our translation in America says seen and unseen. I think that's changed in the new ACNA. ACNA is visible and invisible. Um, I prefer visible and invisible um, because it more directly translates the Greek. And conceptually, something which is unseen could be something around the corner, but not necessarily invisible. So I think that's a little better verbiage. But yeah, but that's when we say seen and unseen, what we mean is visible and invisible, right? That's a good, excellent question. All right, so we're going to divide into our discussion groups. And what I want us to do is to focus in on what our response would be to the concept of God as creator. And before we do, I want to give us a a couple of examples of things to to kind of get the discussion going. First of all, we need to move more slowly and intentionally through life, taking the time needed to take in everything around us more carefully and more observantly. We need to ponder the goodness that made it all. We need to learn to stop seeing only what's directly in front of us and look closely enough and slowly enough to see in it what we cannot see, what's behind it. Secondly, we must cultivate the creaturely response of gratitude, of thanks to the God for what he made. Creation is a major reason for gratitude. In fact, it's at the basis of Eucharist. Most of the church liturgies start the Eucharist out with praising, thanking, thanking God as creator, to which we then quickly add also thanking him as redeemer, which is recreation. So we need to practice the joyful discipline of gratitude. We need to stroll through meadows and parks and along the side of the lake and purposefully, intentionally develop the discipline of giving God thanks for every flower and every leaf, um, every bird, every little detail. There's marvelous things to the soul. Thirdly, we must not reject anything in creation. Now, we must not abuse creation in any kind of sinful way, which happens very often, 
But without abusing it, we must learn to embrace with joy the very materiality, the earthiness of the visible creation. Because it will always be a part of us. Even in the new earth, the visible, earthy, material creation will be a part of who we are and will be our home. And fourthly, we need to learn to see the seeds of the divine in everything. There's the fingerprints of our maker on everything he touched, especially in our fellow man. We must see the created goodness in our world that is buried beneath the corruption and know for certain that it can be and will be restored and recovered to its glory. So those are some things to get us there. All right. All right. Let's go ahead and write up in the word.